Here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the book of Galatians, reading from the fourth chapter, verses four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And may the Lord truly bless the understanding, the illumination of this word to our minds this morning. Let's ask him to bless us in that way. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for, scattered throughout the word, the, the reinforcement of the Gospels, the Gospels sort of in a nutshell that are presented to us. And, oh dear Lord, this is such an expansive statement, is way beyond me to be able to put it together. So I just pray that you would give speed to my words, that you would give conciseness to my words, that they would be descriptive and that they would... Uh, bring out in our minds what I know was in Paul's mind when he made this statement. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of this sermon this morning is Journey to the Fullness of Time. And when we speak of a journey, um, we're, we're speaking about a trip, going someplace, the, the distance between two places. But it's not just like taking a trip and the trip is over. It's not like jumping on a plane and going to Atlanta and you're there in two hours and there's no incident at all. When we talk about a journey, we're we're talking more about something that sort of takes some time, something that has some events that are in between your leaving, your getting there, and then, of course, there's an outcome when you get to where you're going. For instance, um, if you were going to Atlanta, but rather than getting on a plane, you were to take an open car and go the back roads and stop at every single attraction on the way and eat as much food as you could in the process, that would be more of a journey. There's something that occurs on the way there. And then when you get to your destination, there's some way that the destination is tied together with the trip to get there. Now, of course, this is Christmas Eve morning, and our minds are on the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and I kind of think that's a good place for us to start, because I want you to visualize uh, what some of the songs we just sang so beautifully express. I want you to imagine that you are right there in that stable, whether it is attached to a house, whether it is a cave, wherever it actually was, that you're in that stable, and there before you, lying in a manger, a trough that was made for animals to eat out of, is the newly born Christ child all wrapped up in swaddling cloths. Now, quite a few journeys occurred in order to get to this spot. In other words, the journey, for instance, of Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary had to leave Nazareth and travel, difficult travel, dangerous travel, and Mary is way pregnant along the way. So I imagine they had many adventures, a lot of events, both good and bad, occurred towards that end. And of course, the end is right in front of us. Jesus Christ is born, and all the prophecies concerning where and how he was born have been fulfilled. 
I'd like to use the Magi here as the, uh, as the song, Oh Holy Night, just included them, but they really don't come around till about a year later, but, you know, they're always included in the nativity stories, but they had a journey as well across searing deserts to follow the star, to get to the King of Kings to honor him. Imagine the journey out in the fields now where the shepherds are and the angel, angelic host has come to sing glory to God in the highest. Imagine the journey that they made just to get to this place. But no greater journey has been taken on this night than the journey that the child in that manger took. Because he is God in the flesh. He left his home in heaven. He humiliated himself, set aside his glory in the sense that he took on the attributes of a human. And there he is lying in that manger. What a journey that must have been. But there's another journey I want to talk about this morning. It's a journey to get to what Paul has described, the fullness of time. It's, 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 it's a journey that includes all of human history. All of God's redemptive plan is all wrapped up. And in that child laying in the manger right there, we see the fullness of time accomplished or manifest or realized. And so therefore, we're going to take an epic journey through all of of human history to get to this very point. Now, I, I haven't preached all that much out of the book of Galatians. In fact, I think that basically five sermons have been preached from this pulpit since I've been here, and four of them were preached by other people. Um, I've only preached really on, on Galatians one time, but it is one of those little big books uh, that we find in the epistles. And by little big book, I mean it's not real long, but my goodness, what the what uh, theology and Christology is wrapped up into this book. Now, if you're one of the few men who are still here who were part of our men's breakfast prior to the pandemic, you may remember that we were studying the book of Galatians. We had been on it for nine years, and we had already made it through the fourth chapter. But don't, that's not my fault. These guys like to talk, all right? So I can't keep them corralled all that well. So, um, but anyway, we, it's, it's not that Galatians is, in, is any um, new uh, book to me. But nonetheless, Galatians was written by Paul. It was written probably around 52 AD. He was probably at the church at Ephesus when he wrote it. Galatia is not a town. It's a region. So there were a variety of churches that were there. The second Antioch church, the church at Derb, the church at Iconium, the church at Lystra. All of these were probably the churches that Paul is referring to. Now, when he writes this letter, there's a problem in the churches. A group of Jewish Christians known as the Judaizers were trying to enforce some of the traditions of Judaism like circumcision and the dietary restrictions on the Gentile Christians. And Paul vehemently defended that we are saved by faith. Now, he makes a point as part of this that the law was, was uh, had its place. It had its purpose. It was kind of like a young man growing up, a prince, if you will, under the tutelage of pedagogues and guardians. But when the fullness of time comes, when he's grown, when it's time for him to take the reins, then you set aside the pedagogues. You don't need them anymore. And that's what he's making the point. As far as that child in a manger, okay, the law is perfect. It has all kinds of reasons, but we didn't get here overnight. 
This is something that has been going on from the beginning of time. And so that's the reason we're going to focus in on this. What does Paul mean when he says fullness of time? So let's look in here. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on just that one phrase. So when it gets a little bit late and we're still on the first part of it and you're seeing a verse and a half left, don't panic because we're going to go through those relatively quickly. But it's, it's what Paul means by the fullness of time that I really want to see this morning. Now, as far as the text is concerned, the words are pretty simple. They're pretty straightforward. Fullness and time mean pretty much the same thing in Greek as they do in English with maybe just a little bit of a, of, of, a, of a subtlety to it. Fullness, for instance, doesn't just talk about something being full. It talks about the state of being full. And it has the connotation that that state of being full um, kind of happened a little bit at a time. In other words, just imagine this. Imagine that we have a cup sitting on a table and we have some water and some things that we're going to fill that cup with. And we add a thimble full of water at a time. And we keep adding a thimble full after thimble full after thimble full until it is in a state of fullness. All of what goes into that cup is in there. Let me give you another analogy that might be a little bit closer to where we are. It's Christmas time, and a lot of you are going to go and visit other people if you haven't already done so and are watching on the Internet. Well, you probably took some gifts with you because that's what we do at Christmas time. So I want you to imagine that you have a big basket, and you've got a huge family that you're going to go visit. And you have all of these gifts over here, and you start placing the gifts into the basket one at a time. And you put them in one after the other until all the gifts are there and the basket is full. That's what you would refer to as the fullness. And now, of course, we're putting time in the basket and not gifts. But we're going to see that the way this actually turns out, they are gifts that are going in that basket. Because God has been giving gifts to humanity since the very foundation. Now, the whole reason for this journey, folks, is what we're seeing right now in, in the manger of that Christ child. And I'm going to ask you the question, and every single one of us has got to ask, answer this question, what are we going to do with this child? What are we going to do with Jesus? That's the question of your life. What am I going to do with Jesus? How am I going to respond to the fullness of time that God has brought about in Jesus Christ. Now the reason this is important. The reason we've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Is that the reason that we are in the, that the fullness of time was needed. Is because God in his mercy and love and compassion. Loves his creation. And wants to be reconciled to them. The history of humanity is the history of a journey. From being separated from God. To a time of complete relationship with God. Of rest institution of that relationship. So therefore, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning. We have to go back to Genesis because we know that originally Adam and Eve were placed in the garden in perfect fellowship with God. But they rebelled against God when the serpent came and tempted them. They fell to that that temptation and they fell. And as God kicked them out of the garden, and as he leveled curses on the man, the woman, and the snake. This is what he said to the snake, and this is hugely significant, because actually what God is going to do here is promise something in the fullness of time. 
He says this in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So basically what that says is that right now as it stands, because of the fall, there is enmity between the snake and God. There is enmity between the woman and the man and God. Now, he is saying that when the fullness of time comes, I am going to bring a different situation. I am going to put enmity between the seed of the serpent, between evil, between sin, between the devil, and between God. Rather than, I'm sorry, the seed of the woman. Rather than the enmity being with God is going to be with sin. In other words, he is going to do exactly what we have been talking about on Sunday mornings when we talk about the cosmic initiative. When Jesus came into this world, he came with a threefold objective to destroy evil, to stomp on the head of the serpent was the first one. And that is exactly what God is saying. He's saying in the fullness of time, and I want you to remember that baby in a manger, in the fullness of time, I will bring a deliverer who will be the seed of a woman. Now, don't miss that. Okay. Seed of a woman. What's the seed of a woman? What, what is that going to be? Human. All right? So he says there's going to be a human. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God says that I'm going to solve the problem of the separation between us by sending a human who is going to stomp on the head of the serpent. Okay? So with that... We are going to see very quickly the consequences of sin. It's no mystery. Very quickly. The very first siblings, Cain killed his brother Abel. And we saw this spiraling immediately down until finally God, (laughs) it just gets put out with everything. And he says this in Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, at that time, and you know these stories, I'm just going to thread them all together. At that time, you know that he brought swift judgment upon all of the earth. He brought that great flood and it destroyed every man, woman, and child on earth. Every animal was on earth that couldn't swim except for a remnant, except for Noah and his family. Now, I want you to notice something. There is a cycle that is going to continue to repeat itself throughout redemptive history. It starts with blessing, Adam and Eve in the garden. And then there is rebellion and a sin is committed. And then that sin spirals into evil. Once we get to that evil, God brings judgment, but he saves a remnant and brings them back into relationship with him. Why didn't God just destroy everybody, including Noah and his family? Because God has made a promise. He said it's going to be the seed of the woman, okay? And the woman's Eve. And so if he starts brand new, then that promise is broken. So God keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant, and so he therefore redeemed Noah and his family. Now, he made a promise with Noah. He said, Noah, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to destroy the world in order to deal with the evil of man. When the fullness of time comes, I'm going to bring a different solution. He makes a promise and it goes like this. He says, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, 
shall not cease. In other words, time is going to progress. But in the fullness of time, I'm going to solve this problem that exists between humanity and God. And I'm going to do it with the seed of the woman. Okay, And just so we know that's not false, he put a rainbow in the sky. And brothers and sisters, I hope that you recognize this. That symbol of a rainbow has been hijacked in, in our day. But every time you see a rainbow, I hope that what you do is praise God because he keeps his promises. That little child that we're looking at in a manger right now, that is what that rainbow represents. God, all those years ago, said there will come a day when the fullness of time comes that I will send forth my son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that they can be adopted as sons and daughters. That's God keeping his promise. And every time you see that rainbow, I hope that you remember that because that's what it means. Well, anyway, once again, as always is the case, even though God saved uh, 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 Noah and his family, they immediately started sinning. And once again, there's a spiral of evil. And by the time of Abraham, the whole world is dark again. In fact, Abraham himself was probably an idol worshiper. Who was worshiping God in those days? Who was the, the faithful seed, the thread that, that, that maintained the worship of God? Well, I imagine it was old uh, King Melchizedek, right? Because he's the only one that I know of who was being faithful to God in those days. But nonetheless, God brought Abraham and he's going to make a covenant with Abraham. And he's going to continue to put gifts in this pot, you know, in, into this big basket. Because he's going to reveal some things. Now, those of you who have been here in the morning know that we've been talking about the cosmic initiative. We've been talking about the coming of the kingdom of God on earth, Jesus bringing it. And we've talked about the fact that a kingdom needs three parts. It needs a sovereign king. It needs a sovereign dominion over which that king is sovereign. And it needs subjects. Well, two out of the three of those God is going to give Abraham right now. Because he takes him outside and he says, look at the stars. I'm going to give you, even though you're pressing probably 80, 75, 80 years old at that time. I'm going to, and I think he was 75 when he left her. But however old he is, he's 100 when he has children, all right, when he has Isaac. But he says, I'm going to give you descendants like the stars of the sky and the, suns of the, uh, and, and the sands of the sea. So there we have the people. Those are going to be the subjects of the kingdom that God is going to establish. And he also gives them a dominion. He tells Abraham, take a look at all of this. I'm going I'm, I'm to give all of this to you. Now, it's going to be 400 years later because I've got some things to do. But ultimately, I'm going to give this to your descendants. And then God reestablished the promise that he made with Abraham. Brothers and sisters, listen to this, please. Because this is way long ago. Okay, this is, this is way early in human history. God put Abraham to sleep just after this, gave him a vision. And he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. In those days, they had kind of a gross way of making the covenant. They would split animals down the middle and take the carcasses and put them apart. And then the two people who were going to solidify that covenant would walk through those carcasses together. And God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And they split the carcasses and then God and God walked through. Abraham's asleep. He doesn't walk through with God. It's not God and man that are walking through. It's God and God who walks through. God says, now the solution to all of this problem, the solution to the, to the need for reconciliation between us is going to be solved by God. Wait a minute. Back there in Exodus, you said it's going to be the seed of the woman. 
So we're starting to get hints here, folks. We're starting to get hints way back then that it's not going to be any normal solving, that there's going to be a human involved and there's going to be God involved, and somehow the two of them are going to fit together. Of course, we know how it is, right? Because we're looking at him, that little, that little baby in a manger. That's exactly what has happened because God becomes man and works, lives in our midst. But that's not the first time that we've heard that. And so therefore, no matter how important Abraham was, he, he still did not see the fullness of time. But I tell you what Abraham did see. Once again, let's put another gift into that basket because God gives us another beautiful gift. After he gave Abraham his son, Isaac, and he's 100 years old and his wife's 90 years old and God miraculously gives him that son. After he gives him that son and Abraham just falls in love with him, remember what God said? Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son that you love, take him over there to the Moriah Mountains and sacrifice him to me. Abraham obediently did so, and Abraham, a man of faith, did so knowing that if he actually did kill his son, that God had promised that this was the son of promise and God would raise him from the dead. But, of course, we know that God stayed his hands. But there's a, there's a question hanging in the air that's going to hang in the air throughout this whole process. On the way up the mountain, Isaac says, Father, I've got the wood and I've got the fire. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? That question is going to bring, because the fullness of time is not going to come until the lamb appears, right? So we're going to have to trace the, the lamb too in this journey to the fullness of time. Well, once again, evil takes over in the, the world. Even though God has made this beautiful covenant with Abraham, and even though he set him apart, and Isaac has a son, Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, we, we know that immediately they start sinning. They sell their second to youngest brother into slavery. But 400 years later, the people of Israel now have grown from 70 to just sort of a, or just over a million people. And they're starting to throw their babies into the Nile River to be eaten by crocodiles because there's too many of them. So God has blessed them in numbers, but they are in bitter bondage, surrounded by evil. Once again, evil completely takes over in the form of the country of Egypt. Now, God is going to put another gift into the basket. He's going to tell us another way that this is going to be because he calls Moses to himself and he says, Moses, I'm going to send you to release my people, their slaves, to evil. I'm going to send you to be a deliverer. So now all of a sudden we know that the ultimate solution is going to carry a deliverer with it. So Moses goes and he works many mighty miracles, breaks the back of Pharaoh finally with the last one. And Pharaoh says, let him go. But you see, it's that last one that people started thinking about, well, maybe this is the fullness of time. Because in that last one, do you remember what it was? God said that the firstborn of every child, every family in Egypt, the firstborn is going to die. Well, gosh, children of Israel in Egypt, right? So that means each one of their firstborn are going to die too, unless there's some way of covering them, of protecting them from the wrath of God. So God says when, the, when the, 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 the angel of death comes over and takes the life of every firstborn in every household, if you will put the blood of a sacrificial Pascal lamb on your doorpost and lintels, that angel will pass over. Could this be the lamb? Is this lamb that Isaac was looking for? Well, no, of course it's not. It's not there. It's not there yet. The fullness of time has not come. But we just got a picture. We just got a picture that this lamb is not just an ordinary lamb. He's a sacrificial lamb. 
And by his blood, people are going to be, fancy word coming, propitiated. That just simply means there's going to be a covering and that God's wrath is going to be protected by the blood of the Lamb. It's also another beautiful picture of God's redemption that he gives, atonement actually. Children of Israel now have left Egypt. They're standing by the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's army show up behind them. They're trapped like rats against the Red Sea. What are they going to do? Well, that's when God opened up the Red Sea. They walked through on dry land. And just to prove a point, well, probably more involved than just proving the point. But when Pharaoh's army followed, when evil tried to pursue God's people to take them back into bondage and back into slavery, God brought the waters down upon them and killed every one of them. The horse and his rider fell into the sea. Because evil, once God redeems his people, once the final solution is here, once the fullness of time has come, <laughs> there's not going to be any return. There's not going to be any control that the devil or, 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 or sin has over you. Because once you're freed by God's plan, you're going to be freed indeed. Well, that's not even the end. I could tell you so many gifts. They just keep going in to, to that basket as the fullness of time marches on. But one of the things that happened immediately after this is, okay, we just had two beautiful pictures of two aspects of how our sins get forgiven. Our sins have got to be forgiven. So it's through the propitiation of the blood and the expiation of removing the evil away from us. And so God gave them that in reality. When they reached Sinai, when they reached that mountain, they gathered before that mountain as the first meeting of the Kahal. That's the Old Testament church. When they gathered before that mountain, God gave the law. God gave the law, the very law that Paul is talking about. We'll get to that in a moment. But God gave the law so that we know what God expects of us. At the same time, realizing that no one could keep that law perfectly, he gave a sacrificial system. He gave the tabernacle. He gave the Holy of Holies. He gave the Ark of the Covenant as an example of the Emmanuel principle, God with us. And every year on Yom Kippur, he would atone for the sins of the people. Once again, a goat this time taken and slaughtered and sacrificed and his blood sprinkled upon the very symbol of God's presence with us. Is that the fullness of time? Is that the way God is going to reveal the Messiah? Is that the answer to Isaac's question, where is the lamb? Well, no, it's not. As the book of Hebrews says, it's impossible for the blood of bull and goats to forgive sin. So it's pointing to something. Like everything else we're talking about, it's all pointing to something. All of this is going to come about when the fullness of time comes about. And it's not going to come about before that. So as important as, as Moses was, he still did not see the fullness of time. And even though God had given these people such beautiful um, uh, deliverance, the exodus, his law... The sacrificial system, the ark, the tabernacle. He gave it all to his people. Once again, they just fell into a spiral of rebellion and sin. Until finally, they ended up in the end of the book of Judges. And this is what we read. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Total pandemonium, total chaos. Because there was no leadership. There was no guidance. And so, we have the subjects. 
We have the dominion. Now what is needed is a king. So God gave them a king. Not Saul, but David. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man upon whom the Holy Spirit rushed continually. Could David be the one? Is he the seed of the servant? Is this the time when the time would be full? Oh, David did so many things. You know, David was really a Renaissance man long before the Renaissance came about. He, he, he was the kind of guy who could go out and kill 10,000 people and then come back and write the most sensitive song you've ever heard. You know, he was just that kind of man. He did all kinds of things. He brought the ark to Jerusalem. He reestablished worship. He expanded the, the, the dominion of the kingdom way beyond what God had given to Abraham. He did all of these things. He brought wealth and he brought posterity and to a large degree peace to the inside of, of um, Israel. But he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah because the Messiah is going to have to be a perfect sacrifice. And David wasn't perfect. We know that his sin with Bathsheba is probably the quintessential sin of the whole Old Testament. So David, if he goes and he's a sacrifice for people, well, he's going to have to be a sacrifice for his own sins. He's not going to be able to atone for the sins of anyone else. So as important as David was, a king, and and, and it had some kinds of priestly functions, he was not the Messiah. The fullness of time is not there. But I want you to see God just keeps adding. He just keeps adding thimble after thimble into that cup. Because there will be a time that the fullness of time will come. But you know something else started about this time. Moses had actually been the first one who started it. He began to tell us. God began to put words in the mouth of his prophets and say, You know something? I'm going to define my Messiah. I am going to tell you who he is. And to Moses, he says, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your people. And I will put my words in his mouth. And you better listen to what he says. David, in his life, and all the beautiful psalms he wrote, he began to see on the distant horizon the Messiah that God would send. A king of whom he was just a type. And a kingdom of which his kingdom was just a type. He wrote things like this in the, psalm, in the second psalm. As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In Psalm 110, he writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He's talking about the one to come. In Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. All of these are pointing forward to the fullness of time. But once again, evil takes over with everything God has given the people. David dies and sleeps with his ancestors, and Solomon, his son, comes with unprecedented wealth. But then after Solomon dies, his sons begin fighting with each other, just like Cain did with Abel, and before you know it, the, the kingdom is divided. And a spiral starts. Some of those kings would do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he would bless them. But then others and finally most of them would do what was not pleasing. What was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And once again, I want to remind you of that cycle. It's been going on all the way through this redemptive history. God blesses his people. They rebel against him. They begin to get more and more evil until all of a sudden they cross the line of God's providence. I wish I had some time to explain that. But he doesn't, they don't cross the line of his patience because he's infinitely patient. But there is a line in the sand. There is a line that you can cross over, and that's the line of his providence. And when that occurs, harsh judgment comes upon his own people. That happened to the northern kingdom, first with the Assyrians that came and destroyed and, and, and spread them over the known world. A little bit later, it came at the Babylonians that destroyed the southern kingdom, destroyed the, uh, the, the, the temple, took the ark, and took everybody off to Babylon for 70 years. But once again, after that judgment, God returns a remnant in the form of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra. They came back and they reestablished. God in his mercy continues to bless his people. But during this time, something Really amazing started happening. God began what he started with Moses, what he continued with David. He began to do it in in a tremendous way. Almost as if he was saying, I'm going to give you guidelines to when the fullness of time comes so that no one can make a mistake. So that when he does come, you'll accept him. And if somebody comes that doesn't fulfill all these prophecies, then you know that he's a fake. And so he began to put information into the mouths of his prophets. Over 300 verses of information of who the Messiah is. Over 400 specific prophecies. And basically what he's saying is, if somebody comes, you think about the mathematical possibilities of that. Uh, I mean, our math teachers will tell us that's beyond the possibility of mathematics. You, You can't have that number. It's too big. That can't happen. And God says, when all this happens, then you've got your Messiah. Then the fullness of time has come. And they started to tell things like this. First of all, they said there's going to be someone who's going to come and precede him. Isaiah said, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway to our God. When he is born, he is going to be born in a miraculous way that you cannot miss. The Lord himself will give you a sign, Isaiah says. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Micah tells us exactly where the poor little thing is going to be born in a town that nobody would have paid attention to. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Amazing details start getting thrown into this pot. Things that are so detailed you couldn't possibly make it up. Like the fact that when Herod uh, tried to kill the baby Jesus in Bethlehem, the angel told Joseph to run to Egypt. And then the prophet Hosea says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. The incomprehensible nature of this Messiah. Isaiah brought it out in a, in, a, in, a, in a verse we know very well. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God and man in the same person. Now how can that be? But wait a minute. We already heard that, right? 
If we've been paying attention to the, to the process of time, we know that God initially said it's going to be the seed of the woman who's going to do this and God himself is going to bring it about. So all Isaiah is doing is just confirming what's already been said. But what no one expected was that he would come as a suffering servant. No one expected that he wouldn't be that great military king to be like David, to be that great power. But no, God told us that he would be despised and rejected by men, once again from Isaiah. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Furthermore, he would be that sacrifice. He would be that sacrificial substitutionary atonement that we have seen in the lambs before. He poured out his soul to death, Isaiah continues, and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. God is going to continue his process of saying that I'm going to make a covenant with you, but this is going to be the last one. This is going to be the one that sticks. This is going to be the one where the new wine is put into new wine skins. And he tells Jeremiah, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. He's going to be a suffering servant. He's going to be human. He's going to be God in the flesh. He's going to be a deliverer. But he's also going to be a king. Daniel sees that in his vision. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Whoa, now we get it. Now we see the kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. It's not an earthly king. It's the heavenly king. And we are the subjects if we put our trust and belief in him. Just like Abraham said all those years ago. Just one last piece of the puzzle. There was one of the last prophets, Malachi. And he said this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So everybody's looking for Elijah. When is Elijah going to show up? Well, that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Jesus himself said, If you're willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah to come. And so when John the Baptist is in the Jordan River, he's telling people, okay, it's right around the corner. The Messiah is on his way. He said things like this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit fire. And then there was that day. John the Baptist is standing in the Jordan baptizing as he did every day. And all of a sudden he looked up and there he is. Remember what he said? Just came popping out. He answered Isaac's question right then and there. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb has come. The fullness of time is upon us. That's what we see as we see that little child there. That's what Paul is talking about. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's a statement that screams, brothers and sisters, of preexistence. 
This was a baby born in a manger, and I see him right there in my mind's eye, and he's a human being, but that's not where he started, because he was sent forth. The word is our old familiar word, apostello, from which we get the word apostle, and we talk here at New Hope all the time about being apostles. We're not apostles, but we are indefinitely sent ones. But there's a compound word here. It's the word ek apostello. It means to send forth, to send out of. God sent his son preexistent in heaven. As Vodibachum likes to say, God sent God. And God humiliated himself by taking on the very attributes of human and coming and living in our midst. That's what we are seeing, brothers and sisters. We are seeing the fulfillment of of the promise that God made to, to the serpent so many years ago. That the seed of the woman will come and he will crush your head. That is what he has come to do. To destroy evil. He has not come in any way to make an alliance with it. He has come to stomp on the head of the serpent. And that's exactly what that little child. I bet, I bet he was probably crying. Children cry. He was a human. I know what the song says, but no, you're you're probably hearing a baby cry there amongst the lowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. But Paul goes on. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is amazing, but what follows it with is even more amazing. Born of a woman. How is that possible? How can we put those two statements together? God sent forth his pre-existent son. God sent God. God has come into the presence and and, and he's born of a woman. Well, wait a minute. We've already learned that, haven't we? (laughs) We've learned all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that it's going to be the seed of the woman. We've learned it in Genesis 15 that it is going to be God who brings us about. Isaiah has told us he's going to be both God and man. And so here he is before us. In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, the Logos, became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's no other way, there's no other way that salvation is going to be brought except for God to become man and to come into our midst. And that's what the fullness of time is. Not only is He born of a woman... But he's born under the law. Wow. That's unbelievable. We're talking about the law giver here. We're talking about the law maker. Placed himself under his own law. You know, I always run the risk when I try to create an image in your mind of that little baby there in the manger. That you're going to kind of go off into the sentimental world. And, and, and I don't fault that. I mean, this, it's, we, we love the precious pictures of the nativity that we see. But sometimes I don't think Christians stop and ask themselves, why a baby? Why born? Why would it be necessary that God send a baby? Why didn't he send along with the heavenly host its commander, who's the second uh, uh, member of the Godhead, in full, powerful human form? Why did he bring him as a helpless little baby in the midst of poverty? Because, brothers and sisters, there's no other way that you're going to heaven except for that. You should be thankful that God sent him as a baby. Because you know something? That baby would have to grow up. That baby would have to live a life. That baby is going to have to go through all the phases that you went through, including teenager and young adults. 
That baby is going to have to go through temptation after temptation. Opportunity to be unfaithful to his God. Opportunity to stop loving his father. He had so many opportunities because he was a human being. And unless he was to come through this life as a perfect example of humanity, then I'm lost. You say, wait a minute. No, he still goes to the cross and he forgives your sin. And that's absolutely true. And I would go and stand before God where only righteous people can stand. And I am a forgiven sinner. I'm still not righteous. You see, two things absolutely essential. The righteousness of Christ made him a perfect sacrifice. David would have been a good sacrifice. He was a good man. He was close to the Messiah, but he was also a sinful man. And he couldn't have atoned for anyone else. Jesus being the perfect sacrifice, being blemishless, without spot or wrinkle, without ever sinning, could go to the cross as a sacrifice and atone for the sins of those who believe in him. He didn't have to atone for his own sin. But second is that righteousness. Oh, that code of righteousness, that that imputed righteousness. You see, when we stand before God, it won't be in our own righteousness. It's not good enough. Even a forgiven righteousness is not good enough. You need the righteousness of God himself. And that's why he came as a baby. So that he would live a perfect life. So that he could impute his righteousness to you. So that you could be reconciled to God. That's what the whole thing's about. From the very beginning is bringing you back into relationship with God. And therefore it was necessary that he was not only born as, a, as, as, as under the woman. But he was born under the law. Why? So that he could redeem those under the law. <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean for you? He's talking about you now. Okay, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about you. To redeem those who are under the law. What does that mean? Well, to be under the law, first of all, is a blessing. Uh, Paul puts it uh, this way, that, that uh, the, the, the Hebrews were so blessed because they had the oracles of God. They knew what God's uh, law was. And that is a wonderful thing. Psalm 119 puts it this way. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. But you see, the law not only is a glorious thing for us to know, it also condemns us because you can't keep it. Not a single one of us can keep it. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, when Scripture says the number one commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It says it in the Old Testament. It says it in the New Testament. How many of you have loved the Lord your God with your whole being today? Not one of you. You've all sinned egregiously. And you've all sinned the worst sin you can possibly sin against God. And so, therefore, you're under the law and that law judges you. That's what Paul says in Romans. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In Romans 3, for all, who have, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Later on, or earlier in Galatians, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so all of a sudden, we're right back in Egypt, aren't we? We're right back there surrounded by evil slaves. Not slaves to a country that dominates us. As Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What a horrible situation to be in. You're a slave to sin and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't work your way out. You can't have merit to get you out. There's no good that you can be that is good enough to not be a slave. You are a slave to sin. And so therefore, I don't know if you've realized it or not, but you need a redeemer. And that's the reason God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem you. Because you're under the law. 
And there's no way that you can get yourself out from under the law. Because God sent for his son so that you could be saved. You are desperate for a redeemer. And then every journey has a destination. Every journey has some place that you end up. And Paul gives us the most glorious destination, most glorious outcome of all this, so that we might receive adoption as sons and as daughters. You know what it means to be adopted by God? Do you realize that? Do you realize even in earthly adoption, it's the the resources of those who adopt become available and become the resources of those who are adopted? And that by being adopted by God through Jesus Christ, you are adopted into the resources of the kingdom of heaven. And the greatest resource of the kingdom of heaven is to be able to stand in the presence of God and worship him in all of his glory. That's what it means to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are adopted. What a glorious statement that is. So let's go back to the manger. Go back to the stable. That's where we started, right? And I told you that you're going to have to make a decision. Everybody has to do this. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with a child? What are you going to do with what Bible says is God in the flesh who's going to come and atone for the sins of people and make them righteous and go to prepare a place for them in heaven so that where he is there they may be also. What are you going to do with him? Now some people are going to reject him outright. Some people aren't going to give him a second thought. They're way too busy with the things of this world. Some people are going to actually get mad at him because their life doesn't turn out the way they expected it to and they blame it on him. But other people are going to fall on their faces and worship him. And that's what I hope you do. When the shepherds heard about this and they saw the angels, they gave us the clue. They dropped. <laughs> they dropped and worshiped the king of kings. They, they, they adored him. So it is my prayer on this Christmas Eve morning that that's exactly what you will do. That you will recognize that the all of redemptive history is wrapped up in the coming of this child. And this journey started at the beginning and ended up in that stable. And you have to make a journey back to it. You have to go back and come face to face with that fullness of time. And have him be your Lord. Accept his love. Accept his offer. To believe in him with every single ounce that is in your body. And let me tell you something. If there is no change in your life. If there is no change of your desire. Whether or not you live a life in sin. Or whether you live a life in righteousness. Then it didn't happen. Because God's people are changed. When he comes into their life. And then you'll be like those angels out in the field, singing glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. You don't want to talk about peace today? That's peace. Peace upon those with whom he is pleased. Peace upon those who accept him as Lord and Savior. So I'll leave you with this. It is my prayer that you will come to the realization as you consider this child who is in that manger. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God was sent to this, has spent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave. But a son or a daughter, and if a son or a daughter, an heir 
of the kingdom through God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a plan you have given us, all of it wrapped together. There's no way. There's no way. I mean, what an absurd thought that all of this, this thread that runs through Scripture from the beginning to the end just came about by chance, written by all those different people and, and over all of those years and in different countries and different languages, and it all fits together like a glove. I mean, you have to blind yourself to not realize that this is your word. And I thank you for that word, Lord, and I thank you that you have indeed brought us to the fullness of time. And it is my prayer this morning, Lord, that no one will look at this evidence. No one will look at the fullness of time and then turn around and say, well, I'm going to work it out myself. Help them understand they cannot do it, that they desperately need a redeemer, the one that you sent to redeem us from the law. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.